Well, greetings, church family. Excited for this opportunity to worship together. And so my hope is this isn't the part that you fast for. This is the part that you choose to engage, get loud, worship our King. God, I give you what I can today. These scattered ashes that I hid away. Empty places where I've worn your name Show me the love I say I believe Oh, help me to
Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us, and thank you so much for joining us online. Uh, we pray that our time together will be a blessing to you each week. As always, you can text us at 97000 for confidential prayer support. Uh, we as a staff, we find it a privilege to be able to partner with you in prayer each week, so please text us at 97000. That would be fantastic. If you'd like to learn more about our various ministries and weekly happenings, our website is a great place to start. You can visit us anytime at agorabible.org. And lastly, our ongoing ministry is made possible through your generous financial support. And we would be so grateful if you would prayerfully consider uh, to make a donation. And our website is a great place to do that under the Give tab. Well, now before we dive into God's Word together, would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we are so thankful for uh, just a time together, Lord, to open up your word. And we just pray, Lord, that um, you open our ears and our eyes, Lord, to what you would like us to, to get, out, get out of your word, Lord, that your presence will be uh, in front of us and behind us, Lord, and in our homes, Lord. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that you speak through us and that you speak through Pastor Scott as he uh, goes before us and walks us through uh, this passage and uh, we love you so much for who you are. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, again, great to be with you all in this online service. And we're continuing today working through this story of Joseph. And uh, excited to do that. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. And we're starting in verse 5 today. And I've titled this, What a Mess. What a Mess. I don't know when was the last time you used that expression. It could be a number of different uh, appropriate ways to use it, whether you're walking into your a teenager's messed up bedroom or whether you're coming into your garage that you've been meaning to clean for months or talking to a friend the other day, he told me the story about his new puppy who had tore apart his new couch. And so that was a time where clearly you'd say what a mess. I had an opportunity to use it even just in the last week. I'm at home watching the Dodgers game and eating and enjoying some popcorn, and it went everywhere. You can see a shot here in this photo, and really, it's fascinating to me that my daughter even captures that on film. I don't know what comes to mind. Usually a goofy thing when you think of what a mess, but I actually titled this message, What a Mess, because I think that's a perfect description of Joseph's family. His family life is a mess. But thankfully, we have a God that's in the business of restoring message. You look at his situation and you'll see as soon as we get into it that, man, this is a, a scenario that could only be solved by God Almighty. Getting a chance this week to read different sections about this passage and hearing from different speakers, John Piper, who I really respect, he was talking about seeing the bigger picture mess that God was dealing with before we start delving into the family mess that's maybe more apparent. The bigger picture mess that we want to look at or notice is talked about back in Genesis chapter 15. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, that's when God Almighty reached out to this random man by the name of Abraham and told him 
that he was going to bless him with, with children and offspring and that his name would be great and impact many, many lives. He also promised that he would eventually land in the land of promise, which would be filled with milk and honey. So lots of good things on the horizon for Abraham, all pointing to the line that would come from Abraham that would ultimately provide rescue for all mankind by the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the, the testimony in Genesis chapter 15. But in verse 13, there's a section that I had never noticed before. Chapter 15, verse 13, in the middle of these promises to Abraham, listen to what God tells him. It says, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Listen to this part. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Whoa. So right out of the gates with this new promise to Abraham, God's explaining to him, listen, I've got all these things coming for you, but before you get to all that, there's gonna be a period of 400 years. It's not like a few weeks or a few months, 400 years of affliction. Today, in today's passage, we're going to see the great sin that leads to Father Abraham's offspring getting a 400-year detour. Spoiler alert, though. God will preserve Joseph and then use him to rescue the 12 tribes of Israel even after they decide to sell him as a slave. It's more, as we look at this text here today, it's, it's more than just a lesson about overcoming difficulty. You can simplify it and get it down to that level, that, that micro level of, of, yes, it's learning how to deal with bitterness, and we'll talk about some of that today. But the bigger picture is that God is perfectly preserving the line that will one day bring us Jesus Christ. So where are we at in that family line so far? I want to just give us a, a little bit of a picture of that. First off, you have the, the creation of man, and then you have the, the fall of man, and then you are introduced to Abraham and then his son Isaac. And Jacob, if you remember, stole Esau's birthright, and so he becomes next in line. So it goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the interesting and the part that gets a little bit confusing with the name Jacob is Jacob is given a second name. The name is Israel. And Jacob, here's a graph that's going to actually help with this. Jacob ends up having 12 sons and one daughter. Now, when you look at this graph for a second, this gives us a little bit of a picture of what kind of a family mess he was in. Notice underneath the name Jacob, there's four different wives listed that bear him sons. First Leah, then Zilpah, Billah, and Rachel. So first off, it doesn't take very long of glancing at his family tree to recognize that there's something broken. There's something that's fallen apart. Anytime a master bedroom needs bunk beds, you know it's not going to work well. And that's what's happening here in Jacob's life. So remember, here's the thing I want to make sure we are clear on. Remember, scripture is often descriptive 
not prescriptive. In other words, it describes what happened. It's not prescribing and telling you, especially in this case, that that's the route that we're to take. Obviously, we're not encouraging polygamy here today in our service, just the opposite. Our story shows all the brokenness that comes when we go outside of God's design for marriage and family. He warns against the sin that can sneak into our relational lives if we're not careful. So I wanna pray and then we're gonna explore this mess of a situation that ultimately God will unravel and restore. Let me pray first. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word and how powerful it is. And when we start to see how meticulously you keep your promises, it's mind-blowing. You told us exactly what was gonna happen, how it was gonna play out, and then it does exactly what you say. We thank you that you're reigning over all of this, that you're in complete control. I pray that that even gives us hope when we think about our situation in our life that might seem like it's out of control, but you're clearly working in the story. We ask that we'd be able to engage right now in the study of your word. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to pick up in verse five, right where we left off last week. It says this, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Oh, great dream, right? He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field, and behold, my sheath arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheath. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words." Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers, listen to this, were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, we'll pause there for some explanation. You remember where we came from last week. We were told last week that Joseph was hated by his brothers because he was his father's favorite son. How did the father demonstrate his hatred or or his favoritism towards Joseph? Do you remember from last week? He gave him a really sweet robe. You remember John talking about this robe? It was ornate. It was colorful. It was a a beautiful robe from what we see in the text there. But you got to wonder, why was this so bothersome to these shepherds? These shepherds, were they concerned about the, a fashion statement out there in the fields with the, with the sheep? Not that at all. In fact, to understand what was happening with that robe, you have to look a little bit deeper into the story. Reuben, as you saw in that graph, was his very firstborn son. His firstborn son in that day and age was a huge deal. You were to be the, the one, the heir to all the, that the father had. 
but his son Reuben, and this is where we look at the story and you're like, wow, that is a mess. Reuben had actually slept with Bilhah, which was one of Jacob's four wives. So that obviously threw some tension before, between him and his dad. And obviously, uh, when you're sleeping with two of your brother's moms, that can't go well as far as family dynamics go. So instead of him receiving the birthright, Jacob is now redirecting the birthright to his firstborn son from Rachel, and his name is what? Joseph. So basically, this is a complete shift of, the, of who's getting the birthright. Instead of it being the oldest, he's choosing his son through Rachel. Now, if you're familiar with this story at all, you understand that Rachel was his beloved wife. And she had just passed away about a year prior to this. And so the love and affection that Jacob had towards his wife is now being passed on to Joseph. And there's been a change in the guard. Basically, you're seeing a shift from the, the air and everything going to from Reuben to now going to Joseph. And Joseph was the second youngest. He was just a, a little punk brother. Imagine these guys as they're getting later in years to find out, what do you mean Reuben's no longer gonna be the heir and our punk younger brother from a, a, from a, a different mom is now going to be the heir. It would infuriate those people, those brothers, I should say. And you think about this, I was digging a little bit farther what was significant about a robe in that day and age, the working class had coats and tunics. Basically, a coat or a tunic was something that had the sleeves cut off and was about a waist level so that somebody could be active and moving and, and doing uh, labor and work with it. Now, what was different about a robe is a robe came all the way down like you would think today. Robe, the sleeves would come all the way to the, the wrists and the, the, the base of it would all come all the way down to the ankles. What that meant and what that demonstrated was kind of a free pass from working from that day forward. So he was now in a managerial position. He was in a, in a position of authority over his brothers and they did not like this idea at all. In fact, you don't have to wonder whether or not Joseph was aware of their dislike. In fact, just in the last section of verse four, we're told that they hated him and couldn't speak peaceably to him. In other words, what was going on as Jesus describes, what happens in the heart comes out, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's exactly true with these brothers. They can't stand Joseph and it's seeping out of them. So what's happening in this story is kind of crazy because Joseph has two different dreams. And both of these dreams, it's about his future. And both of the dreams about his future include him being elevated and worshiped by his family. Now, as we've already learned, the brothers already can't stand them. How well do you think they would be at receiving that dream from their brother? Some, some commentators, as I was reading this week, some commentators question whether or not it was very wise of him to share this dream with his brothers. You could make a strong argument that if you have that kind of a dream and you have some brothers hating you, it's probably not the best dream to share and to tell them about. 
I was thinking about it just practically speaking. What would be the reason for him to share these dreams with his brothers? Really, I only see two possibilities. Maybe you can add to the list here. One possibility is that, is that he's really kind of, you'd say, emotionally not mature enough to know better. Emotionally just stunted in growth. He's, he's not realizing the response that this is going to evoke. I don't know if this shows my age or not, but I grew up and it was already an older show when I was younger, but we watched a bit of a show called Leave It to Beaver. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that show. It's extremely cheesy, but you might remember if you did see any of the episodes that this kid by the name of Beaver was actually known for being completely naive and things just kind of blowing right over his head. In fact, he, he needed his older brother, Wally, and, uh, and Eddie Haskell, the neighbor, to help show him the ropes to kind of figure out the, the ins and outs of life. We don't know for sure because Joseph's only 17 years old. He's still a, a kid. He's obviously been sheltered. So maybe it's just because he's naive. So he's He's just sharing his dreams. He's just talking about it with his family. The other possibility, and I lean towards this, I lean towards this. The other possibility is that Joseph knew exactly what he was doing by sharing this dream with his brothers. There's something in our sin nature that pushes us towards the whole idea of poking the bear, that's the expression I would say. You know something's gonna aggravate somebody and you still choose to do it anyway. I would lean towards that. He already knows that he's hated and so he's just kind of antagonizing because he knows he's in a position of favor with his father and authority over his brothers. And we're told, man, he did a great job. If that was the root behind it, he did a great job. The text tells us what we already know about his brothers. It says, his brothers were jealous of him and that they hated him even more. And isn't that how it often works? Isn't that how jealousy works? Once you have something against somebody, it seems like anything that they do just piles on to your disdain for that person. You know, you know it would be something that if they, were, if they were a friend or they're close to you, you know, if this was just a group of brothers that all got along and one of them talked about a, a dream that they had of being elevated above the rest, it becomes something they just tease each other about and they're just uh, kind of messing with them. But instead, because there was that hatred, because there, there was that jealousy, instead, it just adds on and it just infuriates. Isn't that how it works still today? When we have a grudge or something we've held against somebody, whatever they do only seems to add and make things worse. I call it the balloon principle. I read something this week that used this example. This is the idea, is that first, there's no issue at all. But then there's something that, that kind of rubs us wrong about somebody, and we start to add... <laughs> makes us a little bit upset. Then they, they come along, they do something else that aggravates us or makes us jealous. It adds a little bit more air to what we already have against them. And before we know it, before we start to realize it, that's all we can see. It gets in the way of everything that we're doing with that person because we haven't let any of the air out. 
We keep holding things against them. And that's what I believe is happening with his brothers. He's wronged them, or not really wronged, he's just shared a dream with them, and they're just building on their hatred. And really, if you think about it, we have the same exact appeals towards jealousy still today. The same exact things that can, that can get us, that can entice us to hold something. Think about the things that they were jealous about. The first thing, they're jealous about his relationship with his father. Man, he had what they wanted. They wanted so desperately to be loved and valued by their dad. He also, the second thing people get jealous about still today is having stuff. He had this sweet new coat, this, this robe. It was ornate. They were most likely uh, used to wearing old beat up stuff. Man, I want what he has still. We can struggle with that today as we get jealous over other people's stuff. Third thing, position. The area of position that he was in, he was elevated above all of them and clearly from their perspective, not deserving. Can't we watch the person that gets the promotion around us, somebody that's elevated in prestige or popularity? Man, we get jealous. It can sneak in and take root before we realize it. So relationships, stuff, position. And then lastly, in this one, seemingly, seeming favor with God. We're told that they're jealous. If it was just a dream that they didn't believe, why would they be jealous about it? But there's something in them that told them, man, this, if he's having dreams, I'm not having dreams from God. He's not speaking to me about my future. Why does he have something that I don't have? Basically, all of this in this family was a recipe for disaster. Let's continue in the text to see how it plays out. It says, now his brothers went to a pasture, their fathers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am, basically making himself available. Verse 14, so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. I'll point to that in a moment. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go down to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. We'll pause there for a little explanation that you might not catch at first what's happening here. You see, what happens so often is when jealousy has taken root, when there's unresolved tension, what naturally happens? Division. Division is what naturally happens. Well, the brothers go their way and Joseph goes his way. Why are all the brothers together out taking care of the sheep and Joseph's nowhere to be found? They've separated themselves from him. Now, you might not notice what a big deal this is, but it's huge. It still affects us today. And it's so often how we choose to deal with conflict. We have expressions for it in our, in our culture, the I, I, idea of, of ghosting somebody or the idea of the cancel culture. When somebody's offended us, it's a lot easier to just be done with them and go your own direction 
rather than putting in the hard work of working through the area of conflict. And that's exactly what happens with Joseph and his brothers. It's a warning for us still today what Jesus was very specific to pray about for his followers. Man, don't get sucked into this whole idea of disunity separating over different trivial issues. Here though, Jacob, his father, notices that there's a separation. He says, hey, listen, your brothers are out. Why are you here? He basically sends him to go and catch up with his brothers. You might not notice this at first, though, but he tells them the same thing that, he had told, that we had seen in verse two. In verse two, we get a reminder that Joseph is uh, supervising these guys and comes back. We're actually told that he brings Jacob a bad report about his brothers. Now, Jacob is calling him to basically be his representative again, and look what he tells him. Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and listen to what he says, and bring me word. In other words, basically telling him, why don't you go spy on your brothers and report back to me if they're doing anything they shouldn't be doing. This was putting Joseph in an awkward situation. Basically, this is setting him up for failure, and you'd be naive not to realize the situation that he's putting his own son in by sending him as a quote-unquote supervisor over his brothers. So how does this play out with his brothers? Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of the hand, uh, their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Whoa, things obviously escalate pretty quickly here. We're told that they saw him from afar. Basically, with this bright colored coat, he probably wasn't hard to see coming up. So they see him from afar. And what does it say that happens? They conspired to kill him. They conspired to kill him. Now, a lot of us can think about different issues that we've had with our brothers or sisters or family members, some people that kind of rubbed us the wrong way, have said or done some dumb things. And we've thought some pretty miserable things over the years. But really, what does it take to be at the place where when you see one of your siblings, you're like, all right, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill them. Like what in the world? What, what's happening here with these brothers? Here's the thing to understand that I think a lot of times we miss is bitterness does not play nicely. Bitterness is something that can lead us to some really dangerous places. This is how bitterness uh, works in our lives. It's, it's deep rooted and it, it always wants to move us towards a vengeful conclusion. 
or we keep rehearsing the anger. Notice their interactions are like, here comes the, the dreamer. Obviously, the dreamer's been bugging. Let's see what dream he has now. Obviously, they're stewing over what he said, and that this bitterness has moved them to a place of really, if you can't describe it, anything other than insanity. And that's what bitterness can do in our own lives. When we hold on to something, when we won't let it go, when we, we won't release somebody, when we keep on blowing that balloon and it keeps getting bigger and bigger, before you know, it's only headed to a place where it's going to burst. And that's what's about to happen here. Now, thankfully, their brother, the oldest one, as I already mentioned, Reuben, tries to bring some sanity to the situation. He brings some sanity and he explains to him, don't, don't shed his blood. We'll just throw him into this hole thinking that he's gonna rescue him later. We're really unsure if he was planning to do that or not. But notice what the brothers choose to do. What's the first thing that they wanna get after? The first thing they do is strip him of that robe, that position of honor. That was, the, that was the source of their frustration. So they strip him of the robe and then throw him into a cistern. Now, being in Israel a couple years back, we had a chance to spend some time in a cistern. Basically, it's a, just basically a, a man-made hole that's been dug out in the earth with the intention of it. They, after it's dug out, they seal it so that it's waterproof uh, so that any rain that comes would be collected in that thing and it'd be a water source for them in a very dry environment. If you think about it, anytime you're dealing with a huge hole in the ground and throwing somebody into it, it's not going to be a soft landing. So they're determined and somehow the suggestion of, hey, don't have his blood on your hands appeals to their thinking that they're gonna allow instead nature to just run its course. You think about that for a moment, basically somebody in a hole, either dying from uh, no, not enough water or dying from starvation. Water obviously would get to you first, but it's a pretty cruel way to kill somebody. Now we're not told here, exactly what this situation was like. But later on in the book, in chapter 42, as Joseph replays the situation, he talks about being in this pit and pleading for his life, crying out to his brothers, don't do this to me. What are you doing? So how will they respond to his pleading? Take a look at verse 25. This is where bitterness takes you. The next step is a callousness. It says, then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of, of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For is our brother, our own flesh. <laughs> yeah, compassion all of a sudden. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave in that time. They took Joseph to Egypt. You think about what's going on here is just a really unbelievable cruelty. These brothers are so calloused that they could be sitting there enjoying a meal together. So callous that hearing his muffled screams in the distance, 
doesn't move them towards compassion. Instead, it takes them to even a darker place. You know, instead of killing them, let's try to make a profit out of it. That not that how a callus typically works? You get so desensitized, your, your skin starts to build up, maybe on your hand or your foot, so that it no longer feels something. The, the, the skin has built up so that it's no longer sensitive to the touch. That can also happen with our own hearts if we're not careful. Those of us that have been maybe allowing somebody's offense to just build up, build up, build, build up, and before you know it, you're calloused. You're no longer sensitive to their, their pleading and their crying. You're, you're just, you just want to do anything to be done with that person, even in this case, if it, inv- if it involves selling them. So they're there enjoying a meal, scheming how they can make a few bucks. Continue in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We'll learn more about that in the weeks to come, but basically what's happening, what we're learning something here about Reuben. We're learning something from Reuben, and I think this is an important lesson for us, any of us to learn, that half-hearted godliness can't withstand pressure to sin. Reuben was kind of in it, kind of wanting to protect his brother. He's kind of in it, but not fully. You know, when you're not fully in, you're so vulnerable to continue in patterns of sin. If you think about this story, uh, as noble as Reuben might at first seem, he was still just as guilty as the rest of the brothers. Just as guilty because Look at what happens when he sees, he's upset. You're like, oh man, he's having compassion for his brother. But notice his words. What does he say? Where shall I go? In other words, he's more concerned about himself as the oldest brother, knowing that his dad is going to hold him responsible for caring for the rest of them. Where shall I go? There's no, oh, I can't believe what happened to my brother. It's more concerned about self shows a little bit of the place where each of these brothers is at. It's half and half fascinating to me is this is what God chooses to build the nation of Israel. These 12 brothers, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what we still think back to our, our forefathers and our ancestors, people that are often celebrated, but we look at their lives and we realize their lives are just as much of a mess as any of our lives are still today. 
There is only one hero in this story. Now, it's kind of cruel what they do, even going back to the dad. Notice they ask him, if this is, we don't know, is this your son's robe? As if they had any question about it. They, this is the beginning of now a 20-year lie that they're gonna hold above their father. They're gonna uh, basically keep this lie for the next 20 years and not budge with it. Now, it's easy to con condemn these characters in these stories, but how many of us still today have some kind of a, a lie, some kind of a cover-up, something that they're not willing to share with those who we love and care about? It's the way that sin works, and it's a, it's a slippery slope. As we see in this, it started first with what? Start with just a little bit of jealousy. I don't like that he got elevated to this position. Then it, it takes root in, in, in bitterness. And that bitterness is then played out in literally attempting or wanting to murder him. And their calloused hearts won't let him go. And here now, what happens with sin is once you're stuck in the cycle of it, then what you're left to do is to lie about it to deceive. You're seeing every aspect of sin in this family's life. As I mentioned before, what a mess. You notice in this context, did you notice anywhere in this chapter, anywhere we're at, any mention of God? Like, wait a second, where's, where's God in this story? It almost seems like he's just letting things play themselves out. It's almost like a release and say, all right, if that's the direction you wanna go, Go for it. That so often is how God works with his kids. But thankfully, this is still at the place in the story where we describe it as a biography. A biography is just giving you the details of what took place. Pretty soon in weeks to come, it's gonna become a testimony. The difference between a biography and a testimony, a biography is just re a recap of events. A testimony is talking about, man, this is where I saw God's hand at work in this situation. So this story is pretty soon to move from biography to testimony because God's on the move. He's not just on the move big picture wise, taking the, the mess that we made of creation by rejecting his leadership and our sin in the garden. He's also taking this family, the, this group that is gonna make the, the 12 tribes of Israel and he's gonna take a complete turnaround to restore the mess that they've created. Well, my hope is that there's some kind of a caution or warning in this text for any of us. Maybe there's somebody watching right now that if they're honest, the, the thing that the Lord keeps poking them about is bitterness, something that they've held on to about somebody, somebody that's wronged them over the years, that they need to turn over. They need to choose forgiveness they need to release, that they need to let go of the offense. Or for somebody else that's maybe slipped into the slippery slope of dishonesty, maybe, maybe it's a calloused heart, you just have wandered from the Lord for so long that you're just not feeling things anymore. The wonderful opportunity that we all have in this is the ability to call out to him and for him to take something that seems like it's a complete mess and restore it and bring us back to him. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather just around your word. We thank you for this account. And so often we can learn from two things in life, either learn from something that went right, or we can learn from somebody's mistakes, some things that went wrong. 
My prayer is that we'd learn from some of the mistakes and brokenness in this family and we'd have a resolve not to allow those things to take root in our lives, in our relationships, in our families. Thank you, God, for your patience. Thank you for your grace. We praise you now, even through song. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. God, I give you what I can today. These scattered ashes that I hid away, I lay it all at your feet. From the corners of my deepest shame, the empty places where I've worn your name, show me the love. I say I believe. If I
All right, church family. Well, definitely a a tough text because there's not a lot of great news happening in this section of scripture, but know that it's coming, that we have a God that's gonna restore, that's on the move, and it's gonna end up with an amazing testimony of his faithfulness. And the reminder for us is, doesn't matter if you're in the middle, in the thick of a season that seems like he's distant and far away, his story hasn't finished in your life. Praise God for that. Have a great week.